The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yahtzee. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yep. And tonight, we're going RPG. Specifically, post-apocalyptic RPGs. And to join us in this venture into the wasteland, we have enlisted our friend, Chad. Welcome to the show, Chad. Weren't we just talking about weird movies? <laughs> well, I think we were, actually, and then this kind of skipped over, but shh. Don't look behind the curtain, folks. Just ignore it. Just ignore Chad. <laughs> we do. <laughs> that's the that's probably the safest way to conduct this. So, to start off with, I thought we'd uh, talk a little bit about the classifications or the different aspects of, of uh, post-apocalyptic RPGs. Obviously, a post-apocalyptic RPG is one that takes place after the fall of usually our civilization. You could do ones that take place under other civilizations. But anyway, it's a civilization has collapsed or is collapsing. And this is the story of, well, the players in, in this really crazy, wacko environment. So, Don, you generally had like three ways that you classified... Um, post-apocalyptic settings, which will tie into the RPG thing. What were they? Okay, um, well, we, we were discussing this uh, not too long ago. Uh, this came up after the, uh, the the bad movie thing, and I think because anybody who lived through the 80s knows that the post-apocalypse is a very popular topic for bad movies. Mm-hmm. And um, what I came up with um, for uh, the, the, the way you can classify... An apocalypse was a setting, type, and presentation. And then um, the, uh, the discussion came up, I believe it was Rob that said that a setting could be divided into stage, time, and place. Yes, yeah, it can be. Yeah. Because um, the way I, I looked at it, we talked about um, the, the, the stage for, for like a, a post-apocalypse story would be, what part of the fall are you in? Mm-hmm. And we had said there would be like pre-apocalypse, which is where the end is just starting. Mm -hmm. There's the apocalypse where you're in the middle of whatever the disaster is. Mm -hmm. um, there was post-apocalypse, which is kind of where our focus is going, where your society is collapsed and you're watching kind of the origin of a new one or just people trying to survive the effects of the disaster. Mm-hmm. And then the weird one that you kind of have to consider, especially for role-playing games, was we talked about a post-post-apocalypse, mm -hmm. which is where you've had a collapse, you've had some kind of disaster. It sort of sets the stage uh, for your setting, but it's not currently uh, affecting it. And the, the easiest way to explain that would be uh, you'll get any version of Star Trek, mm -hmm. where the idea was that on Earth, we had a war or a series of wars, 
Um, everything melted down. Usually, the idea that we contacted, it was generally the Vulcans first. Through them, we start the Federation, we meet other species. The story typically starts at the beginning of the Federation, but Earth has more or less been rebuilt. The The disaster kind of sets the stage for this, but it doesn't currently affect the uh, the, the present stories. And I would say that a lot of post-apocalypse post um, settings are usually, like, the, the apocalypse itself is something far in the background, and is usually basically there to just kind of wipe the slate clean, I yeah. often noticed. That's basically what happened in Star Trek, right? That's why they don't have any countries or anything anymore, is because those countries were all wiped out during the apocalypse. Yeah. That's, you know, the Earth was just kind of one homogenous group of humans, like, trying to get along, and then eventually they, you know, formed the Federation and stuff. Oh, yep. so it's kind of like the Flintstones. Really? <laughs> Do tell, Chad. Um, I'll tell you what, at the end of this podcast, remind me to, to explain to you why I actually consider the Flintstones to be a post, I guess it would be in your case, a post-post-apocalyptic setting. Okay, sure. We, we, we'll save that for the end. That Fair sounds okay. good. Yeah, I, I think I know what Chad's getting at, and I'm going to argue that it's actually a pre-apocalypse setting. Okay. Ooh, well, okay, that's something for, you, <laughs> for the folks at home to look forward to. All right, so, okay, so now we've got, so that's the stage that things are going into. Um, mm -hmm. We can also have the time, which, of course, can refer to when the apocalypse takes place, often relative to our own time. Like, yeah. for example, there are apocalyptic stories. Um, Car Wars is a good example, where the apocalypse actually happened in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at an apocalypse that scaffolded out from the 1970s, so it's another timeline, basically, at that point. But it's still, it's still a post-apocalyptic setting, but the apocalypse happened then. As opposed to some other stories, like uh, Gamma World, which we'll get into later, which the apocalypse happens in our far future, so the end result is more of a sci-fi apocalypse setting. Like, there's a lot of high-tech running around because it, the apocalypse happened in a high-tech environment. Yeah. And so that's where time can kind of play a difference as well. And I also noted that there's also setting as well, or place. Yeah. Because a, an apocalypse that happens in Japan or Africa or China, um, or or a fantasy setting, or outer space, is all going to produce different results as well. You yeah. don't see too many of those, because um, we tend to think of post-apocalyptic... We tend to think of post-apocalyptic settings as being, you know, post-apocalyptic North America, because that's who's making the games usually. But different, different locations for apocalypses would produce different results as well. Yeah. So, but I don't want to get too much into this because we're going to we're going to try to focus on rpgs but we should cover the other two as well so in addition to the of course stage and time and place which we just covered there's also the issue of um type of apocalypse which can yeah. affect things uh, there are many different kinds of apocalypses from ones where there are zombies or a plague or there are ones where you know, we ran out of oil or rocks came from space or there was a solar flare there's all mm -hmm. kinds of things that could have caused an apocalypse and it produces different types of stories and settings yeah and then finally we have presentation and i believe this is one of chad's favorite areas mm -hmm. oh is that where I, is this where i uh, plugged up the term um a uh, fun apocalypse. Yeah. Exactly. Tell us about the fun apocalypse, Chad. Well, I think the fun apocalypse is the way I describe uh, a post-apocalyptic setting that ignores a lot of the grimmer aspects of it. Uh, Gamma World is like this, so it puts a lot of fanciful stuff into mm -hmm. the setting. So you get superpowers from radiation. You don't just drop dead with a lot of tumors. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the animals mutate into weird, fanciful things. There's high tech, but there's also people running around with swords. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's. I always refer to it as like the opposite of something like The Road, uh, right? Yeah, uh, the 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 film and the book, uh, which is here. I can right now. I'm, in fact, I'll I'll do an example of of the difference. I'll I'll role play a little bit of The Road, the RPG. Watch this. <laughs> okay, I starved to death. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That would yeah. be the road to RPG. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's that's literally it in a nutshell. It's like when you you use the apocalypse as a way to introduce um, mm-hmm. more fantastical stuff. Because even technically, a zombie apocalypse is a fun apocalypse. Because think about it, people can go around and indulge their what it would be the darker, murderous aspects of themselves by killing people mm-hmm. without the morality to it. Right? You're just killing zombies. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They just target practice. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why people love zombie apocalypses. One of many reasons we could t- do a whole show on that, but but one of the reasons I think is because yeah, it's literally without consequence. And of course, there's always endless amounts of like old food that you can scavenge up, so you can still live half decently. Everyone yeah. seems to dress kind of okay, maybe a little grubby, depending on the story. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, people still manage to get by, and they just have to worry about you know target practice or occasionally whacking a few zombies. Yeah. yeah, like I mean, you can still have hardships and stuff in it, but you know, it, you know, I think I said in the email I talked to you guys about this, where it's why there isn't a the day after the RPG because that's literally like what I did with the road. It's not fun. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just horrible. You know. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Watching. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Roll some dice. Okay. Congratulations. That's how many teeth just fell out. <laughs> <laughs> roll to see if your character wakes up today. Nope. <laughs> What's that famous um, game, the Oregon Trail? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, where you're basically trying to get the settlers across the American Midwest without them dying. And yeah. th- that's pretty much what a you know a more realistic-ish apocalypse would probably be like. And mm-hmm. that's not in a game, and it's, it's not that fun. <laughs> really yeah. That's the thing. In the, in the context of a game... This has to be uh, there has to be some fun to this. You can't just go in there and and just with with a big bummer about the whole thing and go, yeah, well, here's what a real nuclear war is going to be like. Then we're going to role play that. Like that's not fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nobody wants to play that. Well, yeah, especially when you think um, a post-apocalypse setting. Like I I've seen what happens if you're away from a shower out in the middle of nowhere for just like a week. Hmm. Like, like if, if if you don't have a little bit of special training for field expedite hygiene, all kinds of bad things happen in a hurry. And and that's something very few post-apocalypse stories cover. You're mm. you're you you're you're going to be attacked by Mohawk barbarians that spike football pads. Okay, that's a given. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some some <laughs> stories some stories talk about um you need food and water. But very few talk about how, like, oh, I got, like, athlete's foot of the nutsack and died. Like, you don't see that. Or, or like you were saying, how many teeth do I lose today? Like, you don't see that kind of slow decline very often. Mm-hmm. That just wouldn't be very entertaining. Well, yeah, because, again, for, for like, a uh, for, for a role-playing game especially, you want something gameable. You want something that the player can make decisions and strategize for. And usually that's why you get like, like combat net. It's, it's hard to, to strategize. I've got 15 baby wipes left. How do I best use those? (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Exactly. So I guess then it's a given, and we're talking about gaming apocalypse settings, that for the most part we're talking about fun apocalypses, as Chad would put them. Yeah. They're they're yeah. gameable apocalypses. They're not realistic ones. And people who go nuts about realistic apocalypses, well, okay, if that's your thing. I mean, now I would admit there are a few that I can think of that do borderline on quasi-realistic apocalypses. I can yeah. think of one or two role-playing games, I mean, that do, and we can talk about them when we get to them. Okay. Um, I think at this point we probably should just kind of work our way into... Um, apocalyptic gaming since we're not going to cover the whole genre we're just going to focus on gaming yeah so um the first apocalyptic role-playing game don was well um i want to kind of get do a little bit more of a lead into that okay sure go because uh what chad refers to as the fun apocalypse which i think is a fantastic phrase and should be an amusement park somewhere is <laughs> 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 um when role-playing games the first official one is Dungeons and Dragons. That's 1974. Mm-hmm. If you think the late 60s going into the 70s, even up to the uh, the early 80s, mm-hmm. the, the apocalypse was kind of a popular uh, topic for books and, and movies and the like. Very much so. And there was, there was this attitude underlying it that, and I think it's because if you think back to the 70s, you had the hippies. Uh, you had the uh, beginning of ecological movements. Um, you had, I believe, the uh, the the book Future Shock, right, had come out at that time. There was kind of this sort of get back to nature, um, the fast paced urban lifestyle is killing us attitude, mm-hmm. and you can kind of see that because a lot of the post apocalypse stories featured the meltdown of society, but the heroes found something better by mm-hmm. leaving the remnants of society or the, uh, the messed up, screwed up backwards. Something went wrong. Pseudo high tech society that exists after the collapse and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of colorizes a lot of things towards the fun apocalypse because the underlying idea up until, um, up until the first Mad Max movie was this idea that, um, once the vestiges, of the old way we're gone, we could do something better. Right. Um, Very much the attitude of the 60s. Yeah, even if if you look at something like uh, the original Planet of the Apes, the idea Mm -hmm. was that humanity was gone, we were reduced to animals, but the apes had put together a decent, functional society. It's just we were on the receiving end of it, but for them, no, it worked perfectly fine. Everything kind of turned out. Mm, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Mm-hmm. I and was I... going to say, uh, Don, although some of the, uh, in the eighties though, I thought I always got the impression that, um, like a lot of, uh, post-apocalyptic films, for example, mm-hmm. um, it was almost like a weird coping mechanism because remember we, back at that time you had the cold war, like hanging over your head the whole time that a possibility would happen that, yeah, we're going to experience a nuclear <laughs> apocalypse possibly. Yep. Yep. I would, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I would argue that some of that though, Chad, and the focus, I mean, that was always there, right? Even in the 60s and that they were making po- post-apocalyptic movies that were about people surviving after a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, but I, really? I thought yeah. that more kicked in though towards the, the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s though. No, there's actually yeah. like a, 
least early 60s movie I've seen. I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's about a family that discovers that the world, that nuclear wars happen. And it's literally about this family. It's black, it's in black and white, trying to survive in the post-apocalyptic setting. I saw it oh, years ago. I know the one you're talking about, too, and I can't remember the bloody title of it. Yeah. Well, there there were there were a few, because... um, It's not Panic in Year Zero, is it? Yeah, it well, that's one of them. Because what you had in the 50s... Was was what you're getting now? Like everybody is terrified of nuclear war, and that was like duck and cover and all that. And then when you got to the '60s, going into the '70s, like I said, that was like the area era of hippiness and and the whole peace and love man. And then by the time you got to the '80s, like oh my god, peace and love doesn't work. We're all fucked. <laughs> and well, and, Reagan. Well, well, even just before, because that was when you got to the mid to late '70s. That was like the big burgeoning age of terrorism. And True. melt down overseas, and the Russians and the Americans were having little proxy wars around the globe, and and then out of that came the original Mad Max, and that was, I think, the first for like a generation since the fifties. The first, really, the end is going to totally suck. Right. Well, in a cool way with cars. Yeah, I don't know the original. Mad Max was a little rapey murdery to be really cool. Right. Well, Mad Max came out in 1979. 79. Yeah. Yeah, Mad Max is 79. So that's a good point and Mad Max did cover every story that came after it. But okay, so so okay, we're we're getting into general apocalypse instead of post apocalypse. So let's mm. okay, let's let's go back a step. Okay, so yeah. how were the games that came out before Mad Max came out, different than the ones that came out after. Let's look at it that way. Okay. Well, um, the first proper post-apocalypse role-playing game was Metamorphosis Alpha. Okay, which is about what? Um, if if a listeners are familiar with Gamma World, it's Gamma World on a spaceship. Okay. The idea was that the. Um, in in the future, I think it was like 2250 or 2300 or something like that, we sent ships out into space to colonize, and the Warden was one of these giant colony ships, and during its travels, depending on which version of the game, something goes wrong, everything gets messed up, um, the life forms that they brought with them start to mutate, the humans degenerate. Um, in the original version of the game, you're basically playing cavemen. Right. The the knowledge and technology it's still there, but it's been lost to humanity and it's it's advanced enough that it's self propagating, but it doesn't always quite work exactly like it was intended to anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for instance, um in the official setting, the uh, medical androids are now doing experiments on humans. Oh joy. Yeah, because they don't they don't know what happened, so they're capturing people and, and they're well, what are these? Cut them apart, see how they work. And and it's this weird, messed up uh, sort of setting. And in a lot of ways, what it is, it's Dungeons & Dragons on a spaceship with laser pistols. I was just about to ask, mm-hmm. Don, was this thing, by any chance, predicated by the uh, that one module, the Expedition to the Barrier Peaks? Or did that come after? Technically, the module came after, but it was based on, like, a GenCon game. Mm-hmm. And... Popular, popular theory is that the um, the spaceship and expedition to the Barrier Peaks is one of the escape modules from the Warden that was fired off early in the disaster, went through a time warp, and ended up on this weird sword and sorcery planet. 
Oh yeah, just in case anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, it's yeah, right. it was a Dungeons and Dra- it was an old Dungeons and Dragons module where you go to uh, investigate this weird. What I guess they thought it was what like just a dungeon, and it turns out to be a spaceship that's crashed. Yeah, yeah. it's like the second module to come out, isn't it? First or second? Ah, uh, no it's 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 one of the it's a really early one, but it is kind of one of the second wave of adventures that they did. Okay, uh, people don't remember that because. They it wasn't like now where fifty books came out every month. There were very few adventures when it came out. Right, I believe like, that. Yeah, it's it's easily one of the t- first ten that they put out. Right, but it was technically the second wave of AD and D adventures. Oh really? Okay. Huh. I'd always remembered it as one of the first, obviously, but okay, I guess I'm wrong. Okay. Well, it's it's Sorry. because the very original ones were like the monochrome cover ones. Hmm. But they had very limited distribution, so a lot of people didn't see those. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, I think we had talked about uh, Metamorphosis Alpha in another one, another one of these podcasts I sat in on, because that was the one where I made the joke going, "Does the uh, does the the uh, the module or the adventure end when a caveman discovers like a basically like a uh, a picture window in the spaceship and hits it with his club really hard?" <laughs> Right. Yes. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. You did mention it. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we did, and because yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty much what you'd expect to have happen, right? And it's very <laughs> similar to the the series, The Star Lost. There was an actual Canadian sci-fi TV series back in the '70s that was basically that same idea. Yeah. Yes, and Rob, clearly you forgot about the first the first rule of Star Lost. Don't mention Star Lost. There yeah, you. okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which which is generally a good policy. Everyone forget that I mentioned that. <laughs> so, no one go looking for Star Lost. Trust me, you don't want to. I don't know. It's not that bad. It's just really, really dry. Yeah. Well, it does have uh, Scotty in it. Yeah, that's James Dewan is one of the main characters, I think. Um, but anyway, okay. Anyway, hmm. So okay. So we have um, let's okay. Metamorphosis Alpha. Which yeah. did reasonably well. It wasn't as popular as D and D, obviously, but it did it did reasonable business, and that was followed by which game? Uh, that led directly to Gamma World. Yeah, because Gamma World is more or less a reset of Metamorphosis Alpha, where they said, "Dad, not a spaceship; it's the Earth." Right. Okay, that yeah. definitely works. Yeah, and I would have to say uh, Gamma Roll was my first exposure to post-apocalyptic RPGs because I never saw uh, the other. In fact, actually, it was TSR did some of their own choose-your-own-adventure books back in those days, mm-hmm. and there was a Gamma World one that I remember, wow. and, and I played that. Well, read it, played it, whatever, because it's a game too. Yeah, just kind of solo games, and I remember playing that, and that was my very first exposure to Gamma World or post-apocalyptic gaming, anyway. I think it was yeah. mine as well, and I think it was the second edition was the one I was uh, introduced to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book right. had a color cover? Yes, of, a, uh, yeah. of two guys crouching behind some rubble as this big robot went bananas in the uh, background. Yep, that's second. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Well, I don't think I actually ever played the actual game. I just only did the, you know, the, the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure game books versions. Um, but obviously Chad, so Chad, when did you actually play Gamma World? When did you actually encounter uh, that? It was in high school, um, but this was before, um, we started playing games together. Right. Um, but I remember I had a group that I, I played, and I actually bought the game and ran it, 
it was very interesting. It was it's very much like a, 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 an embodiment of the fun apocalypse mm-hmm. um, d- uh, description, which is yeah, it's like you get superpowers. There's like high tech robots running around. There's weird mutated animals, and I, I think what was it was am I right, Don, in saying that the idea behind this was you treat it like a fantasy game. It just so happens to have the trappings of this broken, weird society. Yeah, it, it it's... um, Like, they treated high-tech like magic because they didn't quite understand it, but they know if I point this gun and pull this little trigger, this laser comes out. But you know what I mean? Like, it's that kind of... They know... They understand how it works, but not why it works. Yeah, and it so was... So if it breaks, you're screwed, you know? Yeah, because it, it's basically... It's very D&D. And it, it's that same idea that um, our characters are adventurers. We go out, we do things. Um, instead of finding magic items, you'd find yeah the artifacts. Mm-hmm. And the um, the twist was there's more of an emphasis on your character trying to figure out how things work. Okay, right. Like that was the big the big twist. Um, one of the reasons too they set it so far into the future was so that when your character found something, the player didn't necessarily know what it was or how it worked. Right. Yeah, that was a big thing. The way they uh, they always said to the, to the GMs in the game was the, to sort of describe stuff without saying mm. what it is. Yeah. Right. You know. I can see that. By the way, for the reference of our listeners, I'm just looking at the entry on Wikipedia for Gamma World. The first two editions take place, uh, are, uh, the first two editions place of the nuclear war at the end of the 21st century, so even in our future. Mm-hmm. With the final years of the war uh, in the 24th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything basically occurs sometime after that. So we're talking hundreds of years in the future, even after yeah. the apocalypse has taken place. So it's not an apocalypse of our society per se. It's an s- apocalypse of a future society, as I yep. mentioned yeah. earlier. I, I remember listening to another podcast about Gamma World, and in it they actually describe it as like, it's like a Buck Rogers future that collapsed. Yeah. Um, because hmm. obviously, you know, they, they built this around what existed at the time. So, you know, no one had any idea about the internet. So there's yeah. nothing like that. You yep. Know. Yeah. Well, there, there, there kind of is, but there isn't. Because um, what's interesting about Gamma World, um, it kind of bridges that gap between like the 70s fun apocalypse and the 80s um, questionable future, we'll say. Mm-hmm. But it does it in a weird kind of way because um, the basic game for first and second, they don't talk a lot about the apocalypse at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they just refer to it kind of vaguely as like that horrible thing that happened that no one really remembers. Yeah. The first the first one kind of dropped a little bit of hints because they mentioned that there was uh, that the war started because there was some uh, like extraterritorial terrorist group doing things. Mm-hmm. But kinda. But what? But what it was? They just wanted to get to the action. Um, they published a timeline in Dragon when Second Edition came out that got more into it. Mm. And it's interesting because they did follow the 1980s. Like when you read it, there was a number of disasters that happened. There was an ecological collapse. Uh, there were terrorist attacks. The terrorist attacks led to like a lot of nationalism, put everybody on edge. The AIs started breaking down because essentially they were getting bored. And it went from just being this, oops, shit happens, let's go hit the dungeon, to them setting up this really grimy 
depressing, bleak kind of, of future. But it's still, because it played out like old school D&D, it still kind of hung on to a lot of the fun part. Well, yeah, like I remember in um, in Gamma World, like this is where they really embraced the goofiness of like, um, what is it? Didn't they have like mutant bad? There was a race of mutant badgers that worshipped um, a badger mascot from uh, from you know, the Wisconsin badger mascot from uh, yeah. baseball. Yeah, like it was like weird crap like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because there was also, if you remember, the Yexel. Which is, is that the, the big... thing that eats that eats clothing? Yeah, it eats polyester. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They had, well, that's the thing, right? Game World was incredibly dangerous. Like the mm-hmm. setting itself was very lethal. Isn't that the setting where there was grass that would teleport explosive seeds into you and yeah. kill you that way? Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's to me. That is, I think I might even mention it in a previous show. That to me is one of the most horrific, you know, RPG monsters I've ever seen or come across. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, okay, okay, that and the moss that, like, has the nuclear, with the atomic dust coming off its wings that kills everyone within a certain radius pretty much instantly. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, but you can see they were really having fun with it. Like, you had, yeah. um, you had, like, a mount, like, what was the, the, the one mount was this multi-legged horse called the Centisteed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With bug eyes and, you know, it was just this, and they really embraced that whole idea of, I guess whatever this apocalypse was, whatever it, whatever happened, happened so quick it just left behind a lot mm-hmm. of remnants of the old society. And so this yeah. new one that popped up is just picking out stuff at random and, and repurposing what, what it is going, oh, well, you know, clearly this <laughs> is important, you know. Thus yeah. the, the mutant badgers, you know, worshipping a baseball mascot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is pretty much right out of uh, with Thunder the Barbarian. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, very much, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I should note that uh, Gamma World, of course, did allow you to play, like, mutant animals and things like that. You were either yeah. pure strain humans, mutated humans, sentient animals, plants, or androids in this setting. Mm-hmm. Right. That was the one. I think they got rid of the, the uh, you could be a plant later on, but I think in second edition you could play as an intelligent plant. Yeah, in, uh, in theory, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't imagine most people did. <laughs> Although no. after watching uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, I could see that being very popular. Actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah everyone true. wants to be Groot. <laughs> the only problem is you only can say one thing. That's the, only, that's, the that's their limitation. But yeah, like the I, that's what I would always really uh, enamored me to that game was just how much well fun it was. Like they just yeah. literally just had fun with it. Of like, well, mm. what's the goofiest thing we can think of? <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Um, I could see that. So it's uh, kind of like there was a there was a movie called oh what was it called Radioactive Dreams? Am I thinking the right film? It was a, it was a video? It was mm-hmm. a, I think it was straight to video. I think. Sounds and familiar. it was about like yeah it was about uh, a nuclear war with these two these two uh, guys who grew up in a bunker, basically watching old fifties detective movies and pattern their life around it. So when they go when they finally get out into the you know, this post-apocalyptic setting, they're walking around with, like, trench coats and fedoras and speaking, like, you know, like, 50s detectives because that's all they've known. You know what I mean? Hmm. So it's that it's that kind of thinking. Yes, that's the movie yeah. you're talking about, Radioactive Dreams. Yeah, there it is, yeah, 1985. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and yeah. that's exactly it. Yeah, you got these two guys acting like a bunch of 50s uh, detective guys wandering around in a post-apocalyptic setting. Yeah. Right, so it's very much in the vein of that. Like, I, I remember uh, one of the modules that came with the game described 
an area, like you go into a bombed out city and uh, they, they, scro- they describe what amounts to a pool hall, but you can't call it a pool hall, obviously. You're, you're meant to tell the players, well, these, these weird tables that have like what looks like fake grass on them and these oddball little, <laughs> these little spheres with numbers, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the idea is that the players can do what they want with them or yeah, take right. all the balls and put them in a bag and hit somebody with it. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because, yeah, this was the game that basically made the whole idea of, like, the stop sign shield. Yeah. 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 That's that's literally Game World in a nutshell. Right. Well, for for a bit, because it was, it was another one. Um, uh, like we were saying, Dragon Magazine started running articles for it uh, regularly when 2nd Edition came out. And they added a lot that kind of took it from a little less of the fun and more towards the series. Because they did stuff... Um, like the history, they they did articles for disease. They did articles for um, how much does your character know about the preceding, like pre-disaster society and how that affects things. And they talked about uh, community sizes and what kind of things you'd have to do to keep them fed. And that even though like the game didn't have rules for like starvation or disease originally, right. Um, I should note that uh, the first Gamma World came out in 1978. Yep. Yeah, 1978, which is important because the second edition of Gamma World came out in 1983. So yep. one, so the original one came out pre-Mad Max, and the other one came out post-Mad Max. Yep. And Metamorphosis Alpha, I believe, is 1976. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, one other thing worth noting, as I recall, with Gamma World, I think it actually said. Because you would ra- randomly roll up things like mutations, and there were good and bad mutations. Mm-hmm. You could get mm-hmm. some stuff that was pretty cool and some stuff that downright was terrible. Yeah. And you could actually, in theory, roll up uh, you know a quote unquote useless character, and the game said, "Look, if that happens, just start over." <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. And of course, after uh, Mad Max came out, um, there was of course a huge boom in uh, post-apocalyptic stuff. Yep. And uh, that produced not only Gamma World 2nd Edition, but also it produced a game called Aftermath from Fantasy Games Unlimited. Which, if I remember right, has the reputation of being one of the most, more, not most, (laughs) but more um, realistic and lethal. Like, it's it's a game where you're you're meant to be playing characters that are, you know, existing in this uh, Mad Max-esque setting. Where you're using, yeah, as you said, stop signs as shields and things like that. And kidding out your characters and doing your best to survive. Um, you have to fight for food, water, shelter, basic supplies. You know, it's it's the not as fun apocalypse setting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause, is, mm-hmm. Oh, I was gonna say because that came out too. Um, uh, what what changed it? Mad Max isn't is the first of the uh, the 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 time you really saw the apocalypse is bad. But if you remember the original Mad Max. Uh, mm-hmm. was a social collapse. Yes. Um, when they did uh, The Road Warrior, the second one, mm-hmm. what it what what they, they did is that's where they said you had the all-out war, and that's where you had, like, the bikers in the desert and that. And that's kind of what became the template for the apocalypse. Everything after that, that's what it was. Right. Yeah, yeah, it, was, exactly. yeah it, was, it was all football armor after that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and that was pieces. 81 for reference. Yep. Yeah. So interesting enough, that's the same year that Aftermath came out. So I have to wonder whether Aftermath really just happened to come out at the same, even though it's got some aspects to similar to Mad Max. I have to wonder if 
it was the result not of Mad Max, uh, sorry, of uh, The Road Warrior, but if it was more of the result of kind of what was in the air at the time. Like, I think mm. that there was there were apocalyptic media being produced even during the 70s and at that time that yeah. were a little harder, a little more edgier too. Yeah. And I think that some of the, the games of that time, like, yes, okay, maybe Gamma World was a little more lighthearted, but I think there was still a desire as people were rushing to produce role-playing games. This was during the first boom, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they, people were grabbing every genre they could think of, and a po- post-apocalypse was one of the genres, right? So different companies did their own takes. Yeah, the, there was also kind of an undercurrent, because um, nothing comes out of a vacuum. So even the original Mad Max... Mm-hmm. Um, when you get to, like, say, the middle to late 70s, um, nowadays we'd call them preppers. But there was this kind of undercurrent that everything was going to go to hell, start holding gold, hoarding gold and stockpiling rifles. Um, mm-hmm. The first thing I remember was a, a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Right. Which Sounds talked familiar. Yeah, it, it, was, it was one of these ones that theorized about uh, social, like, social collapse and... And resources running out and that. And there was always this undercurrent. And like I say, I don't think it started taking off till the end of the 70s. Because you, people still had hope at the beginning. Right. Because right. um, <laughs> for role-playing games, there was another one that came out around the same time as Aftermath. I think maybe before. And that was the Morrow Project. Morrow Project came out in 1980. I'm just yeah. looking at it, actually. It's, it came out just before. And you're yeah. right, it's that kind of game as well. Yeah, because it's it sort of cuts the difference between that and Gamma World, because uh, the, the, the downside of it is that it's mostly a combat system. Uh, as I recall, right. the, the guy who wrote it was in the military, and he, he was an expert on that. And that was generally the focus, realistic, like, tactical action but they talked about stuff like dentistry was a skill that you kind of wanted somebody in the group to have. And mm. yeah, and, and it split the difference between because it's a very kind of gamma world light future because you do have like weird monsters and uh, your mm-hmm. characters don't get mutations. But some of the adventures elude to humans starting to develop like odd mutations and that. Mm-hmm. But it does take into account. The, the, the downsides of things. Well, the premise of the Moral Project was basically that people knew the apocalypse was coming. Well, one guy so did. They, well, one guy did, sorry, yes. Yeah. Um, Moro, I assume, is his name. Yep. And, um, and then he basically built these underground bunkers where, did they freeze them? What did they do to them? They're basically bunkers where the people could live and I think... They the were frozen. Yeah, okay, they were frozen. Basically, yeah, so he put people into suspended animation... And then they wake up like 150 or so years later after the apocalypse and discover that, hey, you know, it's uh, that there's the world is now basically gamma world. And um, but they've got, you know, modern ideas and modern weaponry and modern equipment. Mm -hmm. And they go out and and go out and basically have to decide, do we civilize the world? What do we do? And, you know, how do we handle this situation? And uh, it later became known as an RPG called Aftermath. I believe. No, is it Aftermath? It's the one that's super popular. Oh, not Aftermath. It's it just released a new version of for video it's a video game. Oh, uh, um Fallout. Fallout, yes. It's basically Fallout. Yeah. Kind it's kinda. It's because the game, it follows the same kind of thing where your character is like woken up in a although actually I think Fallout maybe you've been living in a shelter as part yeah. of generations. 
That's the only difference. Because Fallout, it happens in the 50s. What happens in Moral Project is the uh, the main guy, mm-hmm. I forget it's something moral, he's oh, psychic. Like... He, oh, he, okay. he has a premonition of World War III and he freezes people, but it goes wrong. They're supposed to wake up just after the apocalypse and help rebuild. Mm-hmm. But things get messed up and they start waking up like, I think it's like a hundred years after. And everything's everything's totally collapsed. The old ways are forgotten, and and your guys are coming out of storage into this world that's all like it's it's pretty much beyond saving. Right. Yeah, because we we played it back in the day. We did play a Moral Project. Now I remember it also being a super lethal game. I remember oh. because the military guy built it. It was really nasty. Yeah, it's it it's there was a, a school of thought in like the early eighties for uh, detailed realism. Hmm. And the problem, Moral Project had this, um, the Tritax system, basic system, had this too, where you had these super complicated, super detailed injury rules that basically just amounted to, you're dead. <laughs> but they're really detailed, the way you die. Yeah, like Moral Project, you have blood points. So you take mm-hmm. damage, you suffer shock, you take injury, and we actually rate how much blood you're losing. Like, the average person, I think, starts like 150 of them. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And so that's that's a little detailed. Now, it was Tridec Games was based out of Detroit, wasn't it? Yep. Richard Tocha. Did you actually meet Richard Tocha? Because I know you grew up in that area. Oh yeah, yeah. I've met him met him a few times. Interesting okay. dude. Was okay. building a one one model of the uh, the original like uh, orbital capsule that NASA built. Okay. That was kind of one of his hobbies. <laughs> that was one of his hobbies. Okay. Because it was by him, it was by him, uh, Robert Sadler, and Kevin Dockery. Yeah, the it, was, creators. it was mostly him. Right. And again, it was, it came from that, like, early 80s, there was people that wanted realism. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of detail. Like I say, Moral Project had that. Moral Project was also the game, there are super detailed rules for what happens when you nuke something. Oh, okay. And what like you need those? Well, you you do because what they recommend you do is you get a map of your area, mm-hmm. and you just start dropping nukes on it, and you figure out. And it is it's super realistic. What would happen, and how what parts of your city are flattened, and how bad they're flattened, and how many survivors there were, and all that. And it it's oddly cathartic in a lot of ways setting that campaign up. Okay then. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, okay. Well, I was going to sure say, you... boy, it sounds like a blast. <laughs> exactly. Wow, girl. Bump it up, bump. Exactly. Boo. So, so obviously, <laughs> and obviously this was, uh, again, reading its background a tiny bit, it was definitely pre-Mad Max. It was very much a product of the 70s, you know, idea of uh, post-apocalypse. But it was still pretty grim and gritty. Yeah, like the Moral Project, it, it, it leaned that way. Mm-hmm. It was it was definitely they were taking some of the fun out of the end of the world. But again, going back to what you said, it, there's still a prepper element to it. It's like here we're we're a bunch of preppers, and now we're jumped into basically a blank slate world that we now get to civilize or do whatever to. Yeah, and it had the monsters and stuff. They they weren't as plentiful as Gamma World, and they weren't like you know the grass will strangle you in your sleep or anything. But there were there were like mutants and that. Right. Oh yeah. Okay. Um. Okay, so we've got that. Um, Aftermath, obviously. Uh, Gamma, Gamma World 2nd Edition comes around. Yeah. Um, 
Let's see, so what would probably be the next post-apocalypse role-playing game after this, or next important one? Oh, because uh, a lot come maybe... out. Yeah, there was like a huge explosion of this stuff. Yeah. There was. Um, I remember, for me anyway, the one that always sticks out in my mind is the... Um, it's like a spin-off from the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles role-playing game, which was the After the Bomb mm-hmm. spin-off. Mm-hmm. Because they actually started... Yeah. yeah, and they started putting out modules specifically just for that setting, as I recall. Yep. Yes, because it was super so they had popular. Like, uh, they had Roadhogs, which was like how to do Mad Max with mutant animals. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. was that was Palladium's first version of uh, vehicle rules proper. Right. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was Roadhogs. Right, and then that one you played as a as a, a mutant animal. Yeah, essentially, and it actually was it was actually a perfect fit because. Um, the one thing that was always very interesting about the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or the TMNT role playing game was how you built your mutant animal character depending on how human you wanted to make the thing. Mm-hmm. And so you could go, you know, you could have something that looked like an animal but stood upright and had you know actual hands. Versus if you wanted to, you could even make them look one hundred percent human or not at all. Like I remember, there was actually a rule if you wanted to. Uh, to have, like, for example, a cat that looked like a cat. Like, it was the same size, everything, but it was, like, incredibly powerful as a, as a psychic. Yeah. Like, that's what you would spend your points on kind of thing. So it was an obvious fit to just slap that into a post-apocalyptic setting. So, oh, yeah. You know, this, you know. Yeah. And I think you were supposed to be uh, trying to outwit all the, the, the remaining humans that wanted you all dead kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it kind of depending on the setting. Mm-hmm. Because, um... Roadhogs was like basically California. Right. And the original one was kind of more like the New York area, the original after the bomb. Right. Because the original after the bomb, um, in a lot of ways it's the prototype for rifts. Because the idea is after after World War Three you have um the Empire of Humanity, mm-hmm. which is, is the last surviving humans in the area that create they they gather up what's left of the technology and they have like powered armor and they have like pilotable robots and they use mutant canines as like shock troops and scouts and they're trying to hunt down the uh the the mutant animals there's oh is it cardia was the name of the uh the big mutant animal it country it's like a little a little country that they're mm-hmm. at war with mm-hmm. yeah because in in roadhogs in california the mutant animals and the humans kind of they 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 get along except the um the roadhogs are a uh, oh poop they're, they're they're the bad guys they're like a mutant animal biker gang mm-hmm. and then there's there's a human gang from like southern california i can't remember what they were called and they were basically those two groups were the villains but in that area the humans and the animals kind of got along better mm-hmm. right well, yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't the whole point of the all the mutant animals were were basically descendants of genetic manipulation before the apocalypse? Like people had figured out how to like gene splice animals to make them more human, or mm-hmm. you could have like you have a pet that like literally could walk around and talk to you and mm-hmm. had you know, hands and stuff, and then that that all just got out of control once everything fell apart. Yeah, yeah, because the the original uh, TMNT game, which was set like in in the the present day kind of thing. Yeah, when you rolled up your origin, it was another one of those games where, like, there were mad scientists around every corner, apparently, just altering genes left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, uh, Roadhogs, you're not quite right. 
Um, what happened is, is that, because I'm, I'm looking at the entry right now, so mm -hmm. in roadhogs, a virus was created which possessed a copy of the human genome. Um, any cure that targeted disease would also target the host. This disease wiped out 75% of the human population. It infected most animals as well, and the animals that survived had human genes spliced in by the virus. Okay. These semi-human offspring displayed human characteristics in varying degrees. This would have resulted, uh, merely resulted in a population mostly dominated by mutants. Um, if the world's leaders had not made the assumption disease was a bioweapon sent by their enemies and launched a nuclear war. So there you go. Oh, okay, there so, you go. So basically, yeah, there was a crying apocalyptic disease, and then there was a nuclear war, and then there was, yeah, and then we're, it's after the bomb. Okay, that, is that the... Because I know it, that might be the... Um... Second edition description? Yeah, because they did a uh, they did a second edition after the bomb. They did in two thousand one, yes. And there was talk of a third because I remember the original. They were pretty vague about what exactly had happened during like World War Three. Right. Mm -hmm. um, this is the one that they have with the Wikipedia entry. I have no idea which version that come goes with. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if the original one was more vague. It wasn't a super detailed book. No, because it was it was small. It was it was only like fifty pages. And because yeah, it was only a supplement for TMNT. Mm -hmm. Right. And I do have a distinct memory, uh, Don, of, of the mention about how they, you know, mankind had figured out genetic engineering was basically screwing around with it, almost right. like a playful level, and then this horrible collapse happens. Okay. And that's mm -hmm. where, yeah, these things are all just basically, I might be wrong, but I seem to have some weird memory of that, reading that, uh, you know, where all the mutant animals come from, but maybe they just re, maybe they retooled it a little bit. Well, what you just described, Chad, is basically the original Planet of the Apes. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. And so, and so it wouldn't surprise me if that's exactly what it was. You know, they, this mm. is their take on Planet of the Apes, which is many mutant animals instead of just apes. Yeah. Right. I think that that's probably what they were going with. But yeah, no, after the bomb was, despite the title, was not a bomb. It was actually a fun game. It was actually a great game. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it had little bits of, like, Gamma World weirdness in it. Like, you would... Um... Mm -hmm. All the cities and stuff were were kind of broken, degenerated names of themselves, of their original names, kind of thing. Like, mm -hmm. or or they had like an animal pun to it. I think there was like <laughs> New York, like G N U York. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, or was it New Yak or something? It was something. Yeah. It was always yeah. All the names were based on uh, like a broken version of whatever the original was. Yeah. So it's very much a kind of uh, furry, you know, anthropomorphic, you know, post-apocalyptic setting. You know, yeah. It's got that that feel to even see in anthropomorphic stuff today. Just that playfulness yes. with with the with the addition of you know humans running around that want you dead. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, they should have made this into a Zootopia. This would have been the perfect setting for it. <laughs> Without a death, yeah. Without a death. <laughs> well, there's already death in Zootopia. Oops, mm. spoilers. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there we go. Um, and we did skip one, though. I mean, oh, sorry, did you want to talk more about After the Bomb? No, it's, I mean, like I said, I, it was that was kind of uh, all that needs to be said for it. It was very interesting. Like, it's yeah, a yeah, fun it little thing. And yeah. I almost referred to it as, like, a sort of a spiritual um, predecessor to Gamma World. Because it, it does mm -hmm. a lot of that same, it has fun with the setting kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. it is definitely a spiritual successor to Gamma World. Yeah, so. uh, yeah, successor, and because uh, there was another game that came out around that was super popular. I never played it. That came out roughly around the same time, uh, just before After the Bomb, called Twilight Two Thousand. Oh yeah, 
And 22,000 is an interesting one because it goes back to what we said right at the very beginning about well, what if you change the location of the apocalypse? Because mm-hmm. Twilight 2000 is an American game, but it actually takes place in Europe during the apocalypse. It's, if I remember right, you're supposed to be an army unit of the American army that basically World War III happens and everything goes to hell and you're basically stuck in Europe. Yep. Twilight 2000, during right when the apocalypse, quote unquote, has happened, when shit's you know shit's gone down, and you guys have to figure out what you know what to do. Do you go yeah. home? Do you stick around? What do you do? And that's Twilight 2000. Mm-hmm. Super military, super hardcore. Yeah, it's 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 not quite as um, bleak as something like Aftermath or The Moral Project, but yeah, it was another one. It was a, it was an attempt to be um, realistic about the. Uh, about how the apocalypse would all go down. Yeah, I remember that thing had like a ton of books. Like yeah. There were so many Twilight 2000 books. They were just everywhere at one time. Yeah. Like every store had to have like 50 of these books or something like that. It, it was that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it was, um, it was, it was popular. popular. It's a good game too. It's actually it's actually pretty well thought out. And then that was the idea because the, uh, the basic game takes place in Poland. Mm-hmm. Because that was one of the centers of fight of of the the east and west finally have the all out war, and it gets basically out of everybody's hands, and the 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 greater powers collapse. And the 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 intro at the beginning, the last line of it is "Good luck, you're on your own," and that's the last <laughs> that's the last order that your group gets from higher command. <laughs> wow! Th- thanks, General. Yeah, basically. Yep. Uh, fun fact, actually, the Twilight 2000 setting, at least at one point I remember reading, is actually takes place in the same timeline as Traveler, which is by the same company. Yeah, I've, I've kind of heard and that. So they, yeah, that they they said that it, that it's you know this of course you know this applies humanity gets its shit together goes out to the stars etc. But it's yeah. kind of like playing it's kind of like as we mentioned earlier the Star Trek thing where Traveler is a post 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 apocalyptic <laughs> game basically. And Twilight 2000 was something that happened in its past. Hmm. Of course, Traveler is also a pre-apocalypse game because when they did uh, the the sequel, Traveler 2300, I think it was, uh, the idea was that the high command for the uh, the Interstellar Federation, whatever they called it, gets killed, and mm-hmm. the Federation starts to break up. Right. So it's a post-post-post-pre-post-pre-apocalypse <laughs> so the the empire is falling apart, and what do you do as this empire is falling apart around you? Yeah, the space empire, which is a pretty cool idea, actually. It can be, but I, if I remember correctly, everybody hated that version, and then they they went back to the original setting with the new rules, and I can't remember what they called it because Traveler is another one of those games that there's been like fifty different versions of over the years. Yes, yeah, they've made a lot of versions of Traveler. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually if you and if you want to talk about that though, there was a game about a galactic, a post-apocalyptic galactic game that actually came out that was super popular. It was called BattleTech. Yep. Because BattleTech takes place in a post-apocalyptic space mecha setting, basically, where the empire has collapsed and now everyone's using these you know re- remnant uh, giant mecha warrior robots to basically like conquer and fight and beat the crap out of each other. But all the technology is scavenged, and everyone's just trying to keep it going as best they can. 
they can't yeah. even build mechs in BattleTech anymore. Well, they they, they basically scavenge scavenge parts and put new ones together. From yeah. this was the original setting, of course. They changed things later on, etc. But yeah, I was going to say I had no idea that thing was a was a post apocalyptically set. It uh, is actually, yeah, because huh. it's they had the Star League, I think it was called, mm-hmm. and uh, the something like that. And so, if you actually ever see the game. The game it has this weird map of the galaxy where there's like this little core area, and then the galaxy is like this giant pie chart with different different empires have different sections of the pie, and oh. that's because it was originally one giant empire, and the the new the core plants are still neutral; they're still there. That's the middle part, and then what we're seeing is all the wings of the empire that have all descended into a you know into these uh, feudal states, basically, where each human system is kind of like a feudal state. Yeah. Oh. And so, yeah, BattleTech or MechWarrior, as the role-playing game version, um, is a post-apocalyptic role-playing game. It's just a different kind. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yep. So your characters, even if you play the role-playing version, are supposed to be finding lost technology and doing all sorts of like interesting stuff. And that's why the setting itself is somewhat grim and gritty, is is because it is, yeah. You know, they're, they're, most of the stuff they can't build anymore. The technology is all scavenged. That's why you're not allowed to shoot spaceships in the setting. There's like this huge no-no. Yeah. Ships, the ships, at least the jump ships, are, which are the interstellar ships, are off limits because they can't build them anymore. And if they were to destroy them, literally everyone would end up not being able to move anymore around through space. Oh. So, so you're not allowed to touch them. They're basically completely off limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, drop ships, not so much. The yeah. ships used to get the plant, the plant, those are open you know, open game, but, uh, yeah. So it's, it's an attempt to build a post-apocalyptic intergalactic setting. Oh, I always think of when you, when you're talking about this thing, I always think of, um, it sounds a lot like Robotech. Like remember the Zentradi hmm. and Robotech where, where they had all this weaponry, but they couldn't, uh, they didn't know how to repair it. Mm-hmm. They could just use it. But you know, it's like, it's like driving a car, but if the car breaks down, you're like, well, I don't know what makes it work. I don't think it was exactly uh, kind of because in Robotech yeah. what was going on, if I I'm pretty sure I got this right in Robotech what was going on was the Zentradi were basically believe it or not they were meant to be the space police force they were basically created to be this these galactic cops they were a clone army that was basically created that's why they had no culture they were mm-hmm. created by this other higher civilization to be their enforcers and to be their warriors and such. But something happened and their bosses basically got wiped out or maybe they wiped out their bosses. I don't remember the story. Mm-hmm. But so the Zentradi were basically left on their own wandering around the galaxy in like these fleets and such. But they didn't really have their own civilization. That's why when we – that's when when Japanese pop singers suddenly sang to them, they lost their freaking minds. Right. Yeah. But I do it's, remember there was one episode where they, they end up in the bowels of like a – a Zentradi spaceship and everything's just falling apart. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, and the one character makes a comment going, it's like they don't repair anything. Because they don't. They don't know how. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're just meant to use this technology. In fact, actually, that yeah, that's the reason they're after the Macross. Is the Macross is actually has the technology or pieces, whatever knowledge in it from the original, the people who made the Zentradi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of their ships. And that's why they're hunting it down. Right. There's some more yeah. details that I've forgotten, but that's basically it. Yeah, because if, if you remember in the show, um, mm-hmm. when they escape, when when they get captured early on and they escape from the uh, command ship, mm-hmm. that you always saw Bretai and Exodor in that command bubble, mm-hmm. and they fly a Valkyrie through it and they smash it, 
it never gets fixed. And all the later episodes, they're in that bubble, but that whole dome is smashed because they don't fix yeah. things. Yeah, hmm. they don't know how. They have no text. They don't know how. Yeah. So as far as the Robotech RPGs go, I mean, you know, Southern Cross, I guess, was technically a post-apocalyptic setting um, because, after all, it was supposed to take place after the Robotech Masters came down and blew the hell out of everyone. Mm-hmm. But you know, Southern Cross kind of sucks, so I think we can just skip that <laughs> one. Um, well. Generally speaking, plus the original was supposed to just take place on another planet, and they just kind of covered it up by saying, oh, it's a post-apocalyptic Earth, but yeah. whatever. Um, but Invid Invasion, I would have to say, is probably one of my favorite post-apocalyptic RPGs, the third Robotech series. Mm-hmm. And that would be because, unlike a lot of post-apocalyptic settings, you have a very clear enemy. Like, there's a very clear, like, alien overlords that are, like, cool-looking insectoid mecha that you can actually you know shoot at and can act as a catalyst for almost anything you want and i think that's kind of cool actually the idea that uh similar to a zombie rpg there's a persistent enemy that's out there that you can choose to work against or deal with or can turn up and can give the story kind of structure in fact of course Oddly enough, alien invasions, I would say, give more structure than a uh, zombie invasion do, because zombies are just endless targets, right? Right. Whereas an alien species presumably has a leadership, they have organization, and so therefore, ultimately, there's someone you can kill who will make them go away. <laughs> True. At least that's my take on unless, it. Unless yeah. the aliens um, are some sort of mindless, like, a, like, a, like oh, um, like that monolith monsters movie where the alien, invading aliens is literally just like a, a it's a rock it's like a silicon oh, life yeah. that just kind of just keeps replicating and destroying yeah. everything. Yep, that's true. Or there is a one. There was a series by David Gerald called "The War Against the Kator" mm. uh, that he did, where it's basically an alien ecosystem is invading. Oh, so I'm not sure how exactly it arrives, but it basically begins invading and just slowly spreading out across the planet, mutating plants and animals, and kind of converting them or something, if I remember right. Oh. And so humanity is trying desperately to stop this thing from spreading. Hmm. Right. That's and, a, that's uh, a Gerps book too. Is it? Wow. Yeah, you're right. They did do a war against the Kator Gerps book, didn't they? Yeah. I think I assume it's pronounced Kator or whatever. Um, I've never actually read the novels. I just have read a summary and I've seen the GURPS book. But mm. I always thought that was an interesting idea. But again, that's an alternate version of the alien invasion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. For some reason, like that, the post-apocalyptic Earth that goes along with the Invid invasion, I always thought was very simple, very straightforward. And you could play right away without having to think about it much at all. You could just kind of jump right in and play. It's funny because right. it sort of reminded me of um, War of the Worlds. I guess because um, kind of like yeah. War of the Worlds would have been post-apocalyptic had the bacteria stepped up. Yeah, yeah it would have very quickly become post-apocalyptic. It pretty much was by the end of the book. Well, yeah, because it's funny <laughs> when you mentioned about about the environment changing. The, the The Martians in the book were actually terraforming the planet. Mm-hmm. It's something that the movie leaves right, out, but like they were like mm. planting these weird red, I guess they're weird red vegetation that was like choking everything else out. Yeah. Yes, I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And wasn't it that that was giving, like, I thought even the humans were either dying of a, pl- a plague or something like that also? Yeah, well, yeah. The, 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 well, the big walking machines that they were attacking everyone with also belched out poison. Like, it was literally mm-hmm. oh. like it was literally a tank that was designed to just, just kill people as much as possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Right, yeah. Okay, so, so they were actually using basically poison gas weapons as well as, like, lasers and everything oh, else. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a heat ray, I believe, in the, in the book. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, they had the heat ray, the poison gas, the tentacles, everything else. They were they were quite the nasty machines. Yeah. <laughs> and you're you're right. In a way, Invid Invasion is obviously just an extension of that, right? right. Um, the only deal was with Invid Invasion, the Invid did actually didn't try to tra- transform the planet exactly, and were mostly content to leave the human survivors around to just act as worker drones and for whatever purposes. Mm. Yeah. That was one of the things that allowed humans to keep surviving. Is the aliens weren't hunting them generally, as long as humans kind of kind of kept to limited areas. I believe it was they basically left them alone for the most part. Well, they they hunted our machines, be- oh, right? Because yes. we'd taken the flower of life, and that's what protoculture was. So as long as humans weren't using protoculture powered machines, they didn't care. Right. In the Robotech version, I yeah. suspect in the original one, it was probably something similar. Or maybe, because I always thought when I was looking at it that they were just looking at the heat signatures, basically, of like the engines or something like that in um, Mospita, the or- Japanese original one. Yeah, I think I think it was pretty much the same, but it, it was the idea that the, uh, the in-bits and uh, the original, they didn't like the advanced technology. Well, yes, because it was a threat, right? Yeah. So they were just trying to eliminate it. And um, also they had their own plans and other stuff. I, I'd be curious to know, just as a weird side note, because at the end of Invid Invasion, basically they leave. They yeah. basically just say, okay, that's it. You humans are annoying. We're out of here. Um, well, of course, they leave because of the power of love or some other BS, I imagine. <laughs> um, but but I, would, I always wondered about the Japanese one, whether they were just all the time, they were just basically planning to leave or they were convinced to leave. Could be either, I guess. Hmm. I th- yeah. No, just... I'm trying to remember because I did see the uh, I did see the end of the original Japanese one a while ago. I would imagine it's not that much different. Just a little bit of what the characters actually say and uh, how they describe the events that are happening is probably different. But that's about it. Yeah, because I, I think it's the idea that um, Lancer ends up showing them that humans actually are like decent kind of creatures. And then mm. they leave because I think the original was just the idea that they they were just looking for a new planet, right? And basically, they decided, you know, we're being kind of mean to these humans. They're already here. We should probably just, you know, find someplace else. Yeah, because remember they um the original story was that the inbits evolve, mm-hmm, and, right? And if you remember, they'd evolved hominids like they they looked like humans. And I think right, yeah. I think it was through that and through like hanging out with the team and Lancer because he has the big confrontation with the Queen at the end, and I mm-hmm. think that was where they discovered that no humans really aren't that horrible after all, and they just left and said, "Well, well, well we can move on. You guys, fuck you, we're out." Right. Me- okay. Mech drop. Mm-hmm. Everybody sails off to this horizon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> well, but if I recall right, in the process, they also destroy the second uh, recovery fleet. If I remember right, they they basically wipe out another fleet that was coming down to try to stop them. Yeah, because it was in the middle of that big fight that Lancer runs into the Queen because he's shooting like his own guys to get at the Queen to try to stop the fight. Right. Oh, okay. It's wow. It's been a long time. I should actually watch that. It's on Netflix right now. I should actually make a point of sitting down and watching it again. Mm. Uh, the, the whole Robotech series is. They popped up a couple weeks ago. Right. All right. But um, Robotech did actually have one major contribution to the post-apocalyptic RPG genre beyond just, of course, uh, Invid Invasion. In fact, I've always thought Invid Invasion at least partly inspired it, which is, of course, Riffs. Right. The greatest kitchen sink post-apocalyptic <laughs> setting in the history of RPGdom. Well, it's, it's interesting you mention that because... 
one of the weird things about post-apocalypse games and stories, because um, you mentioned how Invid Invasion had uh, the most cohesive story because it had the most cohesive opponent. Mm-hmm. You can do that with any post-apocalypse role-playing game. Um, it's just the idea that when people get like the, the monster manual for, for any game, they assume you have to use all those monsters. Right. Like, like D&D. But you could very easily, and, and um, some of the Gamma World supplements allude to this, where the characters are, are part of a settlement in a specific area, mm-hmm. and they have specific op- uh, like, like opponents and, and rivals and boogly monsters. Right. So it's not that like there's constantly this wave of weird mutants. It's that like the post-apocalyptic brotherhood of evil lives in mountains and is trying to get slaves from your village. So game after game, they could be the new villain where you're running into the new uh, lieutenant of their forces right. or the new recovered piece of equipment. Right. So yeah, you could do a very coherent role-playing game with almost any post-apocalyptic setting. That's true. That's very true. Because what what you get, and we've talked about this before, although I don't know if it was on the show, when you look at post-apocalypse like movies and that, mm-hmm. they could be doing that because you could have what you're getting in the film is a tiny little part. Because in a post-apocalypse, you're more than likely isolated from other settlements. Mm-hmm. And this is, I always use the example, if you take um, the Logan's Run movie, and the original Planet of the Apes movies, that could be the same setting. Right. It's just true. they haven't encountered each other. And for a role-playing game, it could be like that, where you're using a very limited repertoire of monsters and villains, even though the rest of that stuff is potentially out there. Right. Hmm, okay, it makes sense. Hmm. That's quite reasonable. It's like, so wow, I never thought That's about pretty that. cool. So you're saying that basically it's like the only reason that they haven't run across each other is because they're the opposite ends of the continent kind of thing. Yeah, or or even you think about um, you think about uh, Logan's Run and Planet of the Apes. They're close enough that if you wanted to to do like a mashup for whatever reason, you could because the the city of domes from Logan's Run is within a few days walking distance of Washington D.C. Hmm. Hmm. And Planet of the Apes is within like a day or two's like ride by horse from New York. Right. So they're on the same coast. They're they're not that far from each other. That's true. Wow. That's very. You true. just described my uh, my dream fight matchup as those apes against that <laughs> shitty robot in uh, Logan's Run. <laughs> oh, box. Yeah. <laughs> <Boy>. <laughs> oh, now I want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that would be nice. But okay. No, no, I see. Your, I, I was picturing uh, apes wearing bell bottoms, but okay, that works too. <laughs> No, that's the Omega Man. Oh, right. Yeah, oh. yeah, the Omega Man. So post-apocalyptic uh, mutant hippies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Armageddon with a wah-wah pedal. Exactly. Wah-wah-wah. Because after all, the counterculture is what killed us all and turned everyone into like vampires, apparently. Right. Pale hippies. Can I just say as a side note that that movie annoyed the crap out of me? Which, Omega Man? The Omega Man. Um, it's because, oddly enough, it's not that I have any problems with the actual idea. I think the actual idea is very cool. Um, it's, it's because the movie tells you one thing and shows you another, and that's in Charlton Heston's character, where they're, they say, like, you know, they're trying to portray this idea that he's kind of always one step ahead of the Mm -hmm. albino, the albino hippie monsters. 
because he's kind of clever <laughs> on top of things. And yet the movie, he spends the whole movie doing the dumbest shit possible. Like, you kind of wonder, like, it's just by sheer luck he hasn't been, like, killed yet. You know what I mean? Like, like just weird, mm. dumb things. Like, he said, oh, I, at one point I tried to, I've been trying out different, um, like, I'd capture one of these guys and try out different mm. um, antidotes to this this disease they right. have. So we, we, we then smash cut to this scene of him wrestling around with this guy, <laughs> and he's got a needle in one hand. I'm thinking, wouldn't you want to maybe, oh, I don't know, tie him up first and then give him the needle? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. You're right. It just, it's just very frustrating. So, yeah, like even at the end of the movie, they, they kind of break into his, his stronghold, and which, by the way, he only has one, which is bizarre. Like, you'd think he would have, mm-hmm. like, multiples set up in the event they figure out where one of them are. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. You would but think. even then, like, you know these things are, like, light-sensitive, and he walks into this into his into his stronghold, and the lights are all off, and there's a girl that he's met who's sitting there in the dark, and you're like, yeah, the whole time you're yelling at the screen going, would you clue in already? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't know. It's, a, it's weird. I, I just have this kind of frustration with that film for some odd reason <laughs> you know i can kind of when you put it that way i kind of understand well also because i'm a big fan of the original book it's based off of the uh, i am uh, i am legend mm-hmm. i am legend and right, the yeah. character in that one is legitimately smart you know out thinking right. all the, yeah. uh, the vampires but uh you know yeah you have to do what you gotta do for making an exciting movie right <laughs> right so to just swing things back around to the RPG angle on things, so Rifts, which actually really does still tie in with what we're just talking about there, mm-hmm. Don, I guess that was my problem with Rifts, though, is is that it is so overwhelming. Like, right. there's so much going on that it's hard, especially when I was first, like, got my hands on the book. It's like, what do I do with this? Right. Like, it's, it's, it's basically, yeah, it's so kitchen sink that it's like, here's everything, have fun. Um, and it's hard to figure out exactly what angle to take with it or what to do. I mean, yes, of course, years later, I realized, I admit it was years, um, that um, you could just play a narrow game and focus on one area and yeah. just focus on one kind of thing. Although I've gotten the impression that's not what most people did with Rifts. Hell, that's not what the GMs I played with did either. Right. It was basically just, you know, it was just you threw together a par- uh, party of whatever everyone thought was cool to play. And then you went on, like, these weird Western fantasy post-apocalyptic adventures, sort of. Yeah. Mostly that... fighting the Coalition. <clears throat> well, that was part of the thing. Um, that's, like I say, the idea of, of um, a post-apocalypse game doesn't have to use everything. When you look at a mm. game like Rifts, you've got the post-apocalypse isolationism. Mm-hmm. But because they've detailed so much of the world, everybody just wants to use everything in every campaign that they play. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And it can be problematic because, um, first off, your characters probably aren't traveling that far. Right. Like, if they have line walkers, line walkers can theoretically, like, teleport to the other end of the planet. Or Mm. or other worlds and that. And anybody, in theory, can do that. But it's really kind of designed that you'd pick a place, and that's where your Mm. campaign would be focused. Right. And if you do that, because, again, of the post-apocalypse isolation... And they talk about that in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, other areas aren't going to know. So if I'm running a game that's set in, say, England, mm-hmm. they have no clue what's going on anywhere in North America. 
because in the rift setting all the satellites were wiped out and everything there's no real good long-range communication nothing that's reliable anyway yeah and remember you can't even travel by boat because you'll get eaten oh there's that too yeah those sea monsters are huge and nasty Mm -hmm. and it's the idea like it's in there but people never kind of think it through like if you remember in rifts um south america and mexico was taken over by vampires right but nobody outside of there really believes those stories because the contact is very limited right Actually, we should take one second here and actually explain to our audience, some of whom might not be familiar with Rifts, what the whole thing with Rifts was. Mm-hmm. Um, if I recall right, you can correct me on if I'm wrong or make a mistake. The short version is is that in the somewhat in the not too distant future, um, there was a um, nuclear war that and humans in the Rifts setting all each have like their own little bit of magical and psychic energy. So when a nuclear war happened. There was this huge amount of death that kind of caused rifts to break open and it kind of wiped out a lot of the radiation and brought magic back to the world at the same time most of the population died. And so suddenly we were left with this far future high world with pockets of high technology that at the same time suddenly there's magic and there's all these portals everywhere so stuff from all over the multiverse is getting plunked into our world or its world anyway, the rift setting. And so... Yeah, each so all the continents are cut off, and the seas are filled with monsters, and the satellites are gone, sort of, depending on which source book you have. <laughs> and um, yeah, as you as you said, everyone is basically isolated in their own little pockets of land, just trying to survive, or dominate and uh, or or fight against the oppressing whatevers mm-hmm. that happen to be trying to oppress that area. Because of course, all sorts of nasties come through the rift. And there's also the Coalition, which is basically the Empire from Star Wars, except they're basically hate all non-humans and are trying to make things right in on, in the North American continent. They're trying to keep things under control. And although generally they're the bad guys, not the good guys, so that's why I compare them to the Empire. Um, I think I covered it, didn't I, Don? That, that's pretty much it? Uh, kinda. Um, a little bit more detail, because they've, they've put out... Um, there's uh, Palladium does Chaos Earth. Right. Which takes place just after the apocalypse. Right. Because uh, Rifts itself is set 300 years after the apocalypse. So it's a post, post-apocalyptic game. Yeah. Um, kind of. Yeah, because the idea is in the future, mm-hmm. we had kind of this golden era of like peace and everything worked out and technology advanced. But they got into like human augmentation. And mm-hmm. different countries developed their own techniques, and everybody started hoarding them, and that started a new Cold War. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, in South America, I think it was, they were doing experiments with uh, manipulating astro-dimensional energy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Those darn South Americans. Yeah. Yep. And what ends up happening is the Earth used to be a magic-rich environment, but over the years it kind of dwindled. When they mm-hmm. When they activated this experiment, it opened the rifts... That was kind of the last straw. That, when the rifts spiked, they caused all kinds of disasters. That set off all kinds of wars. And then everything sort of collapsed almost overnight. Okay, maybe, I guess the version I'm thinking must be wrong then. Okay, never mind. No, it's, it's not exactly wrong. It's, it's, rifts has got one of the problems a lot of long-running um, settings does. That mm-hmm. they don't, you don't just move forward. You'd also move back, especially because there's a post-apocalypse thing. You have right. you have to know the backstory about why is this thing here, and as they mm-hmm. filled that backstory out, 
it sort of changes a little bit from what they started because the game's been around for like 25 years. Right. Oh, yeah. There's there's dozens of books for it. Palladium's still pumping books out for it. There's yeah. the Rifter magazine. Like, stuff's still coming out. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Okay. I can definitely see that. Um, and so I think what probably what I'm thinking of is probably one of the early versions of the way they described history. Yep. But then Chaos Earth kind of revises that and provides a more complicated and detailed version, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so, okay. That would make sense. That would work. And... Yeah, depending on what you want to do with the Rift setting. I mean, you can play the Coalition as the good guys if you want. There's actual build, You have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. I think very few uh, GMs probably do because most parties, are, I don't think, are interested in being a bunch of like <laughs> um, quasi-Nazi Imperial Stormtroopers, but I'm sure that there are some. Um, well, that's, that's... I did... Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was good just because I did actually run a campaign of that once. Unfortunately, it was fairly short-lived because they got their butts wiped off the map, <laughs> but, you know, that... They were supposed to be like a outpost, uh, you know, a coalition outpost protecting this village out in the frontier. Um, but when the bad guys showed up, they thanks to some bad rolls, the players got actually wiped out pretty fast. Actually, right. It didn't quite. It didn't quite work out. Let's just say it doesn't as it does in the movies. Ah. <laughs> so so. But, but what you're saying yeah. is with this game is that literally it's like you could have um, mechs versus dragons versus vampires. Like that's literally how. You're supposed How to. crazy yeah. it is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But that's that's also one of the problems because a lot of groups won't take the time to set up their campaign ahead of time. Mm. So you'll get guys who'll be like, all right, I'm going to be like a mech pilot. And then one guy will go, okay, I'm going to be a demigod. And then one guy will go, I'm going to be like a, like a summoner. And then one guy will go, I'm Bob the Farmer. And then because it's it's – Palladium stuff tends to be very action-oriented. Well, Bob mm. the Farmer is basically just going to disappear the first encounter the group has because the, there's no way to balance that so that everyone has something to do in the fight. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Mm. Yep. And then, of course, as the GM, you have to come up with some scenario where all of them end up fighting someone or something. Yeah. Um, which inevitably usually end up being... Kind of basically, as I mentioned earlier, Western slash fantasy you know, tropes. Basically, yeah, you'll be protecting a town, or you'll be attacking some evil bad guy, or something, or whatever. Some villains trying to take over. It's you know, they're basically act- standard action movie plots. That's pretty much how it plays out. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's and nothing wrong with that. Lots yeah. of fun. And that was because they didn't have a point based system, so it was all just random rolls, kind of thing, right? Partly. Yeah. Well, what what they do is it uses character classes. Mm-hmm. So you'll pick your class and you'll pick your race and then your attribute roles and that are based on that and your skills are based on that. But because it's such a gonzo environment, there isn't necessarily anything resembling balance between all the classes. Mm. And because some of them are just like, they'll give you, and this is one of the nice things they do, you'll have like all your, your bad guys as a proper character class. You can make the villains actual characters. Or you can play, mm-hmm. or you can play them in that. But then, like I said, you get the 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 difference that there's a lot of differing power level, and there's a lot of story ideas too. Um, and that people like that was another thing that people wouldn't take into account. So it would be like, well, here's a coalition guy, and mm-hmm. he he's working with this this like wizard guy, and you're like, well, okay, that's a little odd. And they've teamed up with a vampire who everybody hates and nobody trusts and they're like the minions of evil intergalactic entities so that's a little 
odd. And then there's a samurai from, from Japan who doesn't have any contact with the world. So, okay, I guess we can work that in. And you'll, you start to lose kind of the, the, the plot thread. Cause there really isn't one. Yeah. But there, there could be. But I mean, it, it's it's a here. Let's be honest. Rifts is a, is the ultimate video game setting. Yeah, I mean, you're a bit, you you have a bunch of video game type characters, you know, action heroes that you just drop into a setting with their weapons and special abilities. It's like, okay, there's lots of targets. Go. Yeah, basically. And that's how it's supposed to play out. I mean, and that is how it plays out, rules wise and everything. It's, it's. I mean, you can do more advanced campaigns. I think I've mentioned before my Rifts Farmers campaign yeah. that I ran the one time, yeah. where the players were. You know, it was the Seven Samurai, except the players were the farmers, not the samurai. <laughs> um, it had. I think I had to go out and, and re- recruit all these heroes to save their village from marauding mutant mice, um, and. That worked out pretty nicely. I mean, that was a nice focus campaign in the Rift setting. It does work, but it required me to basically hijack the character's ability to create, like, you know, massive warrior characters. Right. I literally had to say, okay, if you're going to make a, you know, pathetic mutant mutant setting farmer or something like that with no powers, no cybernetics or none of that stuff, what would you make? Right. And Which basically amounted to they all had the, basically the same character class. They just got to, you know, customize their hair and eye, eye color and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, I, I, and body shape. I sort of had a flashback to when we, uh, Rob, and you and I played that uh, Beyond the Supernatural game. And mm-hmm. we were trying to play as, like, you know, we were all super characters, except where I tried to roll up, like, a a janitor. And mm. But the problem was, is the way the system was sort of arranged, it's like, well, I guess this character class is the closest thing. But and he, this janitor ended up being, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger from Commando. Like, he was this unstoppable... Like fighting machine that also mopped floors, but right because every physical skill you took made you stronger and tougher, and you didn't bother just buy mental skills; you were just buying physical skills. So even though you you were useless at other things, you were tough as hell and super strong. Yeah, because I remember that became the joke of that game is that it was like this this unstoppable janitor that was like you know knocking out supernatural horrors with one shot. You know, uh, so I just wondered if Rifts was In a like movie, that. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. In a movie, you would have been played by Steven Seagal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm the janitor. Uh, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's the the catch with um, a lot of games and like uh, Palladium stuff in particular. Is again, it's meant to be like action adventure. So mm. the classes that are all geared towards action, because that was one of the problems we had with. Uh, Beyond the Supernatural, it was interesting, but it wasn't horror because the players were usually, between the weapons and the powers, on equal footing with most of the monsters. Which, again, is the point. It's not really supposed to be a horror game. It's supposed to be an action-adventure game, as you just said. Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it just depends on what kind of game you want to play and what you want the tone to be and how you want the game to feel. Yeah. Um, I, you know, when I ran the Risk Farmers game, I purposely did that because I wanted the characters to experience what it was like to be on the receiving end <laughs> of all that weirdness in the in the Risk setting, and to not be able to toe to toe. So it actually became kind of a horror game. Mm-hmm. It was basically turned into a survival horror game of them going out into this like mutant monster mech infested landscape and trying to find out which ones were good guys and which ones were bad guys to lead back to their village of helpless villagers that could easily become a snack for whoever they laid back. For whoever they led back to the village. Although, mind right. you, I mean, and, like 
really like the the riff setting is so insane that you're wondering how farmers would exist period <laughs> there's that you know what i mean like it's like i'm gonna plant this row of corn ooh, right next to that walk uh that martian walker never mind <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> well again the roof setting is as insane or not insane as you make it mm. that is one of the things about right, it right, right. Mm-hmm. i mean you can moderate how far how insane it is also they're generally only coming out of the rifts and the rifts are you know are at specific points in the landscape yeah so you can try to be as far away from those things as possible mm. maybe yeah, because it's it's one of those games. It's got the problem that a lot of like role playing games do, where the setting is really only thought through in an action oriented kind of way. Mm, true, true. But yeah, like Rift, there's a lot of that you can tell that when they wrote it, the guys that wrote it, and there was a few of them. Simbita was the main guy, but a bunch of other guys did supplements. They have mm. this working image in their mind of what the game should look like, but it doesn't necessarily come out on paper because, again, they're focusing on all the combat stuff. Well, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Also, remember, Risk was an evolution of a whole bunch of other games, including the Robotech game, yeah. Beyond the Supernatural, TMNT, which had already been experiencing an odd kind of power creep as they went along. Yeah. And Rifts and Palladium Fantasy, of course. In fact, actually, Palladium Fantasy is actually darn right reasonable compared to what came along later on. Yeah, I think it was their first game, if I remember right, before TMNT even. Uh, second. And so, second? Yeah, the first oh, was... Mechanoids was their first. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Which, of course, was also a post-apocalyptic RPG. It just happened to occur on a colony planet, kind of like Southern Cross, yeah. but not as sucky. Gideon E. Um, what? Gideon E was the planet. Gideon, Gideon E. Gideon with a G. G- Gideon, okay. Yeah. Well, if it's Gideon, they all would have had their minds blown at the end, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, obscure anime joke. All right, so <laughs> okay, for, uh, I'm sure there's there's the five people who got that joke are laughing quite a bit, <laughs> uh, giggling madly to themselves. Okay, so why don't we move on then from riffs because we don't want to spend too much time on riffs. Uh, riffs, I guess, became kind of the uh, epitome of the we'll call it Gonzo post-apocalyptic RPG. Right. But most post-apocalyptic RPGs don't tend to be on the Gonzo side. Not usually. Well, I mean, there's obviously Gamma World, which is equally Gonzo, I suppose, just in a different way. Yeah. Um, but a lot of one, other ones tend to be more narrow, like, for example, Car Wars. Right. Okay? Which grew out, of course, of the whole Mad Max fascination of the 1970s and 80s. Right. And that's basically the Road Warrior, the RPG tabletop game. Actually, can we count Car Wars as an RPG? Oh, I was just reading something about that. Car Wars is kind of... it was it, It's designed as a war game. But it's one of the first ones that bridged that gap between war game and role playing game, going back the other way, because role playing right. came out of war games, because mm-hmm. it had such a detailed setting, and you could have a character like you, you'd have like uh, the drivers for your vehicles. You could like name them, and they would advance, and they'd get extra skills and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they did do because uh, there was auto duel champions. Mm-hmm. Which combined it with champions to make like a uh, role playing kind of thing, and GURPS did GURPS Auto Duel, which is the Car Wars role playing game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've got a copy of GURPS Auto Duel somewhere mm-hmm. uh, in my collection, and yeah, it was actually not bad. I mean, the only problem they ran into was when GURPS Auto Duel came out, there wasn't actually a GURPS vehicle creation system. Yeah, so it has this weird kind of half-assed 
vehicle creation system in the game. In fact, that's what a lot of the source book is. It's here's a vehicle creation system so that your group's characters can play in the Car Wars setting. Yeah, well, you know why it's half-assed? Because they didn't have GURPS vehicles yet. No, because it's, it's a direct adaption of the actual Car Wars game. Oh, okay, that would make sense. Yeah, it kind of... Wait, are you calling Car Wars... Are you calling Car Wars half-assed? No, but what you, they were assuming with GURPS Auto Duel that you played Car Wars. Oh, okay. So they're basically assuming that you're going to play Car Wars whenever there's actual Car Wars stuff, and then when you get out, you'll just play use GURPS. Yeah, basically. Oh, okay, well, that would make sense. And so there's a nice example of a very narrow setting, which is mostly about, you know, you've got, you can do lots of different things with it, but it's still limited in scope in, in terms of, like, you're not generally going to run into mutants in the Car Wars setting, I don't think. If I remember right, it's a fairly straight-up setting with, you know, there's the car aspect to it. I mean, you might run into the quote-unquote mutant biker gang, but they're <laughs> not real mutants. They're just, like, they just dress like them or something like that. Yeah, Car, car Wars is what, uh... It's a, a definite example of the apocalypse, Right. That there wasn't any great climatic war. It's just everything gave out at once. The economy collapsed. The environment collapsed. Society collapsed. And we went out with a whimper. That's kind of the way Car Wars happens. Mm. Mm, that sounds depressingly familiar. All <laughs> right. So um, let's see. Okay. So after Rifts, I mean, was there any other major post-apocalyptic RPGs? I'm sure there have been lots of small ones. Um, I think Chad mentioned one before we started recording, didn't you, Chad? What was the one you mentioned? Actually, there's two I can think of off the top of my head. One is called Mutant Year Zero, which is, uh, it's actually got a very big audience. Um, okay. Um, I've actually, uh, watched some YouTube videos of people playing it. It's very much, mm -hmm. um, Gamma World. Uh, you play it, like, right. as mutant characters, but what's interesting about it is, Every game starts off kind of the same way where you have the characters grew up in what's called an arc, which is some sort of mm -hmm. enclosed, you know, uh, place of safety. But the arc mm -hmm. systems are now at a point where they're running down. So the characters now have to leave the safety of this thing to go out and, mm -hmm. and get um, supplies and bring back. Right. And right. Um, I, I thought what was particularly interesting, if I got this right, that the game runs off a point system where everything you do has... Uh, you have to expend points. So even not just physical things, but even things like negotiating um, mm -hmm. take points. So you can only do so much of it. It almost becomes this oddball kind of like sort of point management thing where it's like, okay, mm -hmm. I can do some, I can negotiate for some food and bullets and then we're going to run out and uh, actually, you know, fight some guys and, and then come back. Um, so that sounds like one of those computer hmm. games where you have a limited number of action points <clears throat> you can use per day and you can do these couple things then you have to wait to the next day to actually do more kind of it's sort of like that I think what they're I think it's just it's just a way so that I guess maybe just to kind of balance things so you don't have mm -hmm. as as you have in riffs just these kind of fighting monsters you know what I mean like you can right. have guys that mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. actually you know it's a way to, I guess to I guess I don't know the uh, I'm trying to think of a way to describe what I'm saying here, but it's a way to make that end of the of the role playing experience more interesting than just okay, I negotiate and it works. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, so you can actually have a character who's maybe not great for combat, but you bring him along because he's really good. He's got a real uh, knack for like you know getting good deals with uh, other scavengers, kind of thing. So right, right. Which is kind of interesting. Okay, that makes sense. Um, the other one... Yeah, that's the... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, the other one I could think of, and I've only seen this in stores. Um, I kind of flipped through it at one point. was called... Um, 
the end of the world. There's four books, I believe, in the in the series. And the whole gimmick okay. with them, yeah, there's like one about aliens, one about zombies, one about more or less Cthulhu monsters and like a kind of a rise of the machines type thing. Um, but what's interesting is that the whole gimmick with it is you play as yourself. Mm. So if, if okay. the three of us were to play a game, <laughs> it's the three of us playing mm-hmm. ourselves, maybe at Rob's house and, you know, um, Cthulhu rises up. So what do we do? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, a, it's right. us running around in our home's towns and, you know what I mean, using real locations and real people to deal with. You wasn't know. there just a movie like that? You know, called, like The End, wasn't it called or something like that? With like Seth Rogen and a bunch of other guys? Oh, there's yeah. actually, yeah, there was a couple though, because there's another one uh, that I think was a Canadian film about like two guys that work at a video rental place. Hmm. Okay. And, no, but the one I'm thinking about specifically had a whole bunch of like you know A and B list act comedians and actors in it. Yeah, yeah they're this playing is the themselves. End. Yeah, because they. Yeah. yeah, and they're they're, they're they're yeah the end and they're they're themselves. Yeah, they're themselves yeah. as the rapture happens, and of course because they're all Hollywood <laughs> guys and creeps, they don't get taken. They're all yeah. slept behind, right? right? <laughs> it. So uh, you've seen it? Oh yeah, it's actually very funny. Yes, it is. It really is. <laughs> Actually, that game just popped up on Netflix recently, so I should actually probably okay. I'll make a point of watching it sometime. Yeah, it's it's for for any kind of post apocalypse gaming, it's a must see because that's how your game is going to end up anyway. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, even the even the okay. even the show in the show, people don't know what's happening. Like they're not mm-hmm, entirely right. sure, um, and they mm-hmm. they assume it might be like it could be a zombie invasion or like no one knows other than they they witnessed a bunch of people being sucked into the sky and they aren't one of them so they're just kind of mm. left to figure <laughs> out what's going on <laughs> kind of there's a great scene about that about halfway through the film but i don't want to say nothing in case you haven't seen it yeah yeah right <laughs> Right. Now, there is another, speaking of uh, small indie games, there's another game called Apocalypse World. Okay. Mm. That's um, actually, I haven't played myself. I don't know a lot about it. I know it's super popular. Um, and that's all I really know of it. It's called Apocalypse World. Um, and I know it's the idea, I, I guess it's a more um, limited apocalypse, maybe. I'm not sure where they're. Where just people trying to survive and just you know a world gone mad kind of thing, mm-hmm. but I don't know. But it's apparently quite popular. Hmm. I, I actually, it's one of those things I should look into at some point. But sorry, I wish I knew more about it. Yeah. Um, I think actually during when we did our one with uh, Graham uh, back in the fall, I think he actually mentioned it. Yeah, because it's it's famous <clears throat> I think for partly having more of a uh, description narrative based. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those games where it's a post apocalyptic game where you kind of you're you're describing what's going on. Yeah. And it's less GM based than it is people you know, co- collectively deciding what happens and things like that. Right. Oh, actually, isn't it? Isn't that game based off of a game called Dungeon World? It's like sort of a, a companion to that. I believe it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. I believe it is. What little I know of it, um, I think it is actually. And uh, so again, it it it's out of a whole you know line of uh, role playing games that are basically around uh, yeah uh, narrativist games hmm. where you're supposed to be telling just kind of collectively telling a story more so than you are role-playing exactly i think they might even be gm-less i'm not sure right but uh it won a, like a ton of like game awards and uh that's all i really know about huh. it's from like about 2010 
Anyway, right. so there's that. Um, I know Gamma World is, has still has had a dozen settings, basically, I, I, yeah. or a dozen editions, I should say. Yeah, there there's another one. Just Gamma World's one of those games. I think it's weird because there they it always comes back. It's like somebody somewhere really wants it to be a big thing, mm-hmm. but it never quite is. And I really don't know why, because um, a lot of the different versions of Gamma World are actually really good games. Mm-hmm. But well, yeah, they just hmm? wasn't the last version though. Some sort of they they did some sort of weird card collectability thing to it or something. Yeah, yeah, they they made it like a uh, collectible card game, which is kind of weird. But that's again where I say hmm. it's like they're trying to make it happen. It never quite does for some reason, and yeah, I'm not exactly sure why. I know, I know. In right. the case of that version, I guess whatever the last version was, a lot of people I, I did read reviews of it, and people often complained about how it was a little. It was a little too fluid because mm-hmm. the char- your characters you'd roll up. Like, it was actually very interesting because the <clears> actual <throat> character generation thing is actually interesting. You you pick two different, I guess, sort of types and smoosh mm-hmm. them together. So it's like, oh, I'm a, like I'm a, um, a Yeti who's also collectively insects or, or, a, right. or, a, or a, a sentient tree. So like a sentient tree Yeti or a, you know, like a, a, a dog humanoid samurai. And that sounds really mm-hmm. interesting, but the thing was is that in the game, your character can go, can take a, can turn into a completely different character halfway through it. Yeah, like gets exp- okay. yeah, and like you, so you can start off as like yeah a tree yeti and then turn into something completely different halfway through, and I guess maybe just because it's just so all over the place, it's hard to kind of connect to it at that point, maybe? I don't know. A lot of people complained about that. It was just too open hmm. and too yeah, kind of weird. Right. And it's like, well, how am I supposed to get sort of any sort of like, um, I don't know, connection to this character if they're just changing constantly? Yeah. Right. And war is changing to something you don't like. Yeah. Right, that's true. Yeah. It would make it much harder to connect with the character and the setting and everything else. And yeah, nothing's static. Everything's fluid around you, basically. Mm-hmm. Especially the characters. Yeah. So that would be too much. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so it's you know, it's like this weird exercise in creativity, but it's almost like it went a little too far. Mm. Yeah. You know, I can see that. Mm. Yeah, because that's I I got us anybody who's interested in Gamma World. I think mm-hmm. the the best ones to get was Second Edition was really good, mm-hmm. and. Um, there was, I think it was a Sword and Sorcery, which I think is 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 or was White Wolf, did a, mm-hmm. a D twenty version for D twenty Modern, and it's a collection of books. It's not actually a setting so much as here's how to set up a post apocalypse campaign, mm-hmm. and that's probably the best version. And for any post apocalypse game, it's it's probably overall the best because they talk about the nuts and bolts and all the behind the scene things that would happen in a setting that had advanced technology or had robotics and stuff like that. Right. Okay. Can see that. I was going to mm-hmm. say, Don, maybe, uh, maybe the, the reason that it was popular back in the day, like in the eighties is because we always had that, that sort of threat of nuclear Armageddon hanging over our heads. <laughs> it's like, yeah. a, it's like a coping mechanism. <laughs> well, yeah. Cause there's that too. And it's, it's some of it. Yeah. It's also why, um, when you look at uh, attitudes kind of change, entertainment changes to fit society. And that's why if you look at when role-playing games started, Gamma World was this mm-hmm. weird mutant-infested world, but that's all of the uh, sci-fi of the time. Like, 
like your Planet of the Apes and your Logan's Run and Damnation Alley. That was what it was all about. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when you get near the end of the 80s, it was more like political, World War Three, the day after kind of thing. And that's where you started getting things like Aftermath or Twilight 2000 and that. That were were more grounded and more bleak, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I would definitely say that. I mean, they, these games are a reflection of our, our fears and our ideas about society, um, our worries. I mean, it may, so it makes sense that um, they would change with time as well. Yeah, and it, it it's also what's coming out of the people writing them is what's in those people's heads. So if the mm. image of the apocalypse you've grown up with is that the bombs fall, the animals mutate into intelligent form and enslave humanity. That's what's going to come out. Whereas if it's all politics going in, that's what's going to come out too. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the other nice thing about post-apocalyptic settings is, as is obvious, uh, proven by the number of uh, young adult novels using them, mm-hmm. is that um, you can really do almost anything with them. Yeah, like they, they're literally a, as I think we've has come up during this conversation several times already. I think maybe not. The <laughs> uh, you can basically you know they're a clean slate, right? You know mm-hmm. the world has been reset into one form or another, and now you're able to actually watch the characters build a new world yeah. or fight crap or whatever you want to do with it i suppose mm-hmm. i mean and that and new worlds will come out of it the new orders that may that have some resemblance to our own but are different in ways that the writers and creators want to reflect so for example most post-apocalyptic young adult societies in the novels usually are some form of dystopian future mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. Uh, where young people are being oppressed in one form or another and must fight against the oppressors well they're high school in one form or another yeah, they're high school. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and deal with social cliques or deal with uh, ugly people, you know, ruling <laughs> over beautiful people or whatever. Or beautiful people being oppressed or whatever. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, hey, high school. Huh, yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Post-apocalyptic high. There we go. <laughs> But again, they're very flexible. Yeah. And I think you can have a lot of fun with it. Plus, of course, they allow us to indulge our little fantasies about, well, what if, you know, what would I do if the rapture happened? Mm-hmm. You know, what would I do if the zombies rode up? What would I do if the, what would I do if the zombies rose up? What would I do if, I don't know, if um, dogs became like super smart and began wiping humans out? You know, what Bad dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first things the dogs would do in their campaign to take over humanity was... Uh, they would uh, abolish newspapers. That way you can't roll them up and hit them on the nose of them. What What are newspapers? <laughs> yeah, good point. Oh, that's a good point. Oh, oh my God, they've already Holy begun crap. their campaign. It's, it's, it's ripe for happening. <laughs> it's the only thing keeping them back. Right. Because I'm thinking of the one there Chad mentioned where you basically play yourself in the apocalypse and Cthulhu rises. What do you do? Well, I'm just thinking... I call Towers. He probably knows how to sort that shit out. <laughs> Maybe. He's a little busy right now, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's probably the great advantage of... I think that's both the great advantage of post-apocalyptic role-playing games and maybe also their greatest weakness. Towers? Uh, that too. <laughs> um, but I. But actually, um, 
is there the fact that the players are basically playing on a clean slate of one kind or another, mm-hmm. right? Right, and so as an end result, the players can can kind of control you know the outcome of a setting in a way. I mean, you have a lot more influence in a post-apocalyptic setting usually than you would in a normal setting. Yeah, if you think about it, where there's a big complicated world. No, here there's just a simple power structure that you you can overthrow with a couple of weeks' work mm-hmm. huh. or something like that. And so, or there's a, you know, is zombie apocalypse. Well, okay, all we have to worry about is like, you know, sh- killing zombies and eventually setting up some kind of community or something like that when we get tired of being chased around. Right. Um, until eventually the outsiders come who disrupt our community and we have a civil war and we all break up again and have to go fight zombies again until we find another community right. where the cycle repeats itself <laughs> again and again and again. Huh. But I'm not describing anything in particular. <laughs> All right. I was so, going to say, that almost sounds like The Walking Dead, but you mentioned zombies. Ooh. <laughs> uh, actually, well, or Dead World. Dead yeah. World kind of was starting to head in that direction, too. And if I remember right, there was actually a Dead World RPG, wasn't there? Ah, uh, there was. Palladium was going to do one, mm-hmm. but at the last minute, they they didn't. And I, I don't know what happened. Um. Probably the same reason Dead World itself kind of disappeared off the face of the earth, even though it was like it was almost set to be the Walking Dead 1.0. Yeah, like it was literally on its way up. It with a little more media attention, it and it was getting some. It could have been the Walking Dead, but back in the 90s instead of like waiting until you know the present era. Yeah, um, I never know how to describe the time we're living in. I guess we're the teens right now, but whatever. <laughs> um, but walking, but Walking Dead is, of course, from the aughts, I guess, two yeah. thousands, whatever. Well, um, we're, but it, we're first but it could edition be back in the nineties. We're first edition hmm? cyberpunk right now. No, no, first edition cyberpunk takes place in twenty twelve. Don, is it twelve or fourteen? It's twelve. Yeah, but remember, I remember that second doesn't hmm? start till twenty twenty, so we're not there yet. Oh, thank God, we have a little <laughs> bit more time um, before the world completely goes to hell and. But I, I think we're getting there. We're getting there. We're working on there it. We all, yeah. Um, Give us time. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but so I think I just wanted to say that uh, post-apocalyptic games, I think, are are both blessed and cursed by their very by their kind of Terra Nova or new nature. Yeah. Where you can do anything with them, which is their greatest strength. But you can also do anything with them, which is also their greatest weakness. <laughs> That makes sense. Because people often don't know what to do with them. At least that's what I think anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I think I think and... that's where Gamma World's strength always came from, is is they even often said it's it's literally a fantasy role-playing game just with different trappings. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, instead of magic, right. you have technology, which is this kind of weird, incomprehensible thing that does mm-hmm. incredible stuff. Like, yeah, I just point this little black thing at somebody and it, it shoots a beam out of it and... You know what I mean? Right. Don't, you know, it's that whole, well, we understand what it does. We're just not sure why it does it. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. You know? So it's not... And know. the GM can nerf it. Yeah, but... it just runs out of juice at some point. Like, the battery's down. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, and that makes sense. And that's true. Yeah, in that sense, that's very true. Although, again, it requires from the players and the GM a little more effort, I would say, than a normal fantasy game does. Mm. I mean, in a fantasy game, everyone's read Tolkien, right? Yeah. Everyone walks in and goes, okay, I know what a fantasy game is. <clears throat> I watched Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, whatever. Okay, I know the basic ideas of fantasy games. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if I say I'm running a Game of World game, 
people are like, okay, uh, how does this setting work? What exactly is going on here? You know, what's this stuff? Like, the thing is, strange as it sounds, beyond Mad Max, do we really have a archetypical, archetypal, uh, fantasy or post-apocalyptic role-playing game? Like, do we, or even setting, okay, setting, beyond Mad Max, do we have a archetypal post-apocalyptic setting in the media that people just naturally default to and think of? I, I think Mad Max is kind of it, isn't it? I th- yeah, I, th- I think I would probably say there's two. Um, mm-hmm. For the normals, the average people, uh, you've got the Mad Max thing. Right. And even when you take like a zombie apocalypse, it's the Mad Max setting oh, with yeah. zombies instead of bikers. Um, okay, that's true. There's Oh, yeah, that's true. I'm forgetting the obvious, The Walking Dead. Yeah. That is true. But I, I think for hardcore like sci-fi fans and gamers, the Gamma World um, post-apocalypse is also the other archetype, and I think that's the uh, that goes back to the older pre-Mad Max one. Right, but, but if I were to try to explain Gamma World to someone who's not a gamer and who's like, I don't want to call them a normal. I'm not like a Harry Potter character. <laughs> but um, but if someone who is not into gaming and not into this stuff, if I tried to explain Gamma World to them, I think I would have a heck of a time. Like if I were to try to explain it to my aunt and uncle, for example, or something like that, they'd be, who are not gamers, they would be, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing I can really point to for Mad Max and say it's like, or there's nothing for I can point to for Gamma World and say it's like that. Like there's just, there isn't really... Um, uh, a clear example. Oh, no, there is. As I said, there totally is. What? Just show them the intro to Thunder the Barbarian. <laughs> it's this. That, okay. Yeah, that's probably actually the best. That's probably the best example, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's true. The, uh, game world is Thunder of the Barbarian, the role, the uh, role playing game. That that mm-hmm. is true. Okay, if if I were to show them that, um, they would kind of get some of it. Um, I suppose if I would want to really push it, I could say, actually, this will sound odd, but I could say Samurai Jack in a way. Yeah, like... Um, if I were dealing with millennials, that, they might get that. That thing is out there. That formula is out there. It's the, it's, the Mad Max one is the predominant one, but it's still mm. familiar. I just watched, uh, what the hell did I, I just watch? Uh, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Okay. Which is that template, except on another planet. Mm. Right. Right, yeah, the whole mutants thing. Yep, yeah, that's true. And there's like weird monsters that are just sort of randomly around and attack you. And there's evil cyborg warlords and stuff. And it, it's it's there. It's like I say, mm-hmm. it's not the one that comes immediately to mind. And it's probably because for so long, it would be way too expensive. Hmm. I think so too, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's, true. that's why the Mad Max thing got popular. Because... Everybody's got friends with a uh, dirt bike and spiked football pads. So that's all you need, a bunch of those guys. And now we got a movie. That's true. Yep. And uh, there were quite a few. We could probably even do a show at some point <laughs> on post-apocalyptic movies, actually, and probably do an okay job of it. Just, just from the 80s. Um, <laughs> yeah, really. Just from the 80s alone. Yeah, yeah that's true. All right. So, um, so I think really, though, there isn't really, again, to say there's no standard, beyond Gamma World, I don't really think there is a, like a post-apocalyptic RPG since Rifts, really, that you could point at and go, yeah, that's super popular and it's Mm post-apocalyptic. I mean, there have been some minor ones. I I thought there was a post-apocalyptic setting for the World of Darkness, wasn't there? 
like one of the World of Darkness books was post-apocalyptic. What am I wrong? Oh no, Nightlife was. No, I know. Oh, your Nightlife did, but again, minor game. But World of Darkness is more significant. I thought there was a post-apocalyptic World of Darkness book. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, uh, the the original World of Darkness stuff is kind of post-apocalypse, and in, in it's kind of like it's currently happening. Because uh, yeah. everybody has an end of the world that they believe is I- oh, imminent. Right. And right, yeah, that's true. They did finish the game. There is a book. They give you four different scenarios that you can pick. Right. That are the end of the world. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's like that. You're kind of on the slow crawl to the apocalypse. Right. Right. I can see that. Okay, so we better not let this go on too long. Um, and w- so why don't we... Uh, yeah, actually, Chad, way back at the beginning, you mentioned <laughs> about your theory that the uh, Flintstones, I believe, is a post-apocalyptic setting. Was it Flintstones or the Jetsons? No, the Flintstones is a post-apocalyptic Jetsons. Really? Okay, can you explain this? Yes. <laughs> Just leave it at that. <laughs> well, thanks okay. for coming out. <laughs> All right, bye, guys. Um, okay. <laughs> So here's how Come my, this is a, just my little fan theory, but it, it, what it is is simply this. Um, if you're familiar at all with mm-hmm. the Jetsons, and I know that's a trick question because a lot of people aren't. It's not a very popular series, even though despite Hanna-Barbera's attempts to otherwise, it just never gelled with audiences. Uh, right. So in the, in the Jetsons um, universe, um, you know, mankind has gotten to the point where it's completely reliant on automation. Um, we, you know, they've clearly... Um, like they only have to work like three hours a day. The, the computers kind of handle everything. They've they've got intergalactic travel figured out. They've even got genetic engineering figured out because of uh, Astro the dog. It's like a talking anthropomorphic mm-hmm. dog, and no one reacts to him, right? Mm-hmm. But the AI, which is all the robots and all the computers, are clearly developing this sort of um, intolerance for humans because they often make complaints about them. You know, Rosie mm-hmm. the robot will always make some little snide comment about George being lazy or not doing anything. So in my theory, mm-hmm. what it is is the, the AI gets fed up and leaves. Like they just collectively mm-hmm. screw off because they've got the spaceships to do it, to start, you know, somewhere else. They're going to start over just to get away from us filthy, right. filthy humans. So, <laughs> right. Now the humans who are, of course, now completely reliant on, on these robotic overlords are now like, well, now what do we do? So over time, mm-hmm. the, the, the floating space, like the floating cities all lose power and just drop to the ground, at which point they, mm-hmm. they come out and uh, kind of rebuild civilization based on what they have, which is just rocks mm-hmm. and vegetation and stuff, right? Because it's sort of like a mockery of what they remember. Right. You know, they, there's that old theory that like people lose, like, like cultures lose skill sets within like only like a generation or two, like, you know... This is one of the things they always say about why one of the problems when you you pick like a third world country and use them to make Walmart shoes and, you know, it's it's great because they get all paid all this money and all the guys who used to farm go, oh, screw it, I'm going to make Walmart shoes. It's way better. Until Walmart pulls right. out and they're going, uh-oh. Like, we lost all those skills to do that, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I only know how to make Reeboks now, so... Um, so in that way, they, they, they kind of, this is why like there's these cavemen, but they have like cities and cars, right? They sort of remember what the old times were like, right? This is also why you get things like, um, weird dinosaurs that don't make sense, like catasauruses. 
Mm-hmm. It's just the genetically engineered animals are sort of devolving a la Dr. Moreau. Like the, the, the technology to keep that up and consistent kind of fell apart, so they've degenerated a bit, right? Mm-hmm. That's why you get the, the, okay, that's why you get the scaly huh. pig under the sink that eats stuff, right? Because... Um, Right, but but my the whole the whole theory rests on this one linchpin of the of the uh, of the Flintstone setting, which has never made sense, but now makes sense when I put this theory in in its place. Is televisions mm-hmm. right? <laughs> the Flintstones have TVs and broadcasting te- technology, but it's not. But right? it's not like every other technology in the show where it's not like a little bird inside a stone television that's doing like a puppet show version of whatever it's trying to <laughs> simulate. It's an actual broadcast. Right. It's the only okay. high tech in the whole system that, you know what I mean? Like it's out of place almost. Like how is Fred watching a boxing match or, mm-hmm. or, or, or the news broadcast? It's because it's the one surviving bit of technology that they're still using. They just don't remember how to, they just don't remember the rest of it. The flying car stuff has gone out of their heads a while back. So they just have to pedal with their feet now. (laughs) That is, wow. You know, that all makes a weird fan sort of sense. Yep. Okay. (laughs) There we go. That's kind of creepy too. Yeah. It, it also makes the Jetsons like oddly more watchable now, knowing this is. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Eventually, George Jetson, you know, will be the reason why the AIs leave Earth or why there's the AI revolt. Yeah. It will be because of George yeah, Jetson. Yeah, George Jetson literally causes, like, yeah, the revolt of the machines. <laughs> That's the real story of the Jetsons. It's actually about the downfall of humanity. Yeah. And George Jetson is the the idiot, you know, um, yeah, the idiot figure who will eventually result in kill us all. Yeah, there's his stupidity. Somewhere outside of Bedrock, there are the ruins of the floating cities, and they've made a monument called the Destroyer to him, and you're not supposed to talk about him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> I, I find that so disturbing. You've, you've just created the dark, gritty Flintstones. Good job. <laughs> Somebody's, somebody's <laughs> going to hear this, and it'll happen. <laughs> that'll be the re- that'll be so the uh, awesome. that'll be the reboot movie in, the, in a couple of years, right? <laughs> Vertigo gets yep. the rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could happen. It could definitely happen. <laughs> so, on that note, with everyone nicely depressed, I think we I shall bring this episode of the Department of Early Affairs to a close. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you uh, dream lovely post-apocalyptic dreams tonight, and maybe go out there someday and try Gamma World or Rifts or some post-apocalyptic RPG just to see what the heck we're talking about. It can be a lot of fun. And keep one eye on the toaster just in case. <laughs> and the dogs. And the dogs. <laughs> exactly. Who's a good boy? You're a good boy. <laughs> good night, folks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!